Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Roland Martin Unfiltered for Wednesday, July 10th, 2019. Roland Martin is off today. I'm Monique Presley. New developments in the case against Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax. Is there an eyewitness? 
Senator and presidential candidate Kamala Harris has a plan to end the racial home ownership gap. Details on ASAP Rocky's arrest and treatment in Sweden. Plus, should drug dealers be charged with murder? And Botham Jane's killer wants a change of venue. It's time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact, the fine. And when it breaks, he's right on time. And it's rolling. Best believe he's knowing. Putting it down from sports to news to politics. With entertainment just for kicks, he's rolling. Yeah, yeah. It's on go, go, roll, roll, y'all. Yeah, yeah. It's rolling, Martin. An attorney for Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax is again calling on the district attorney to investigate the claim of a woman who says Fairfax raped her in a frat house at Duke University in 2000. Fairfax has repeatedly denied the allegation as well as the sexual assault claims from another woman saying the encounters were consensual. Attorney Barry Pollock says there is an eyewitness who can come forward to say the rape never happened. Joining me now is our panel, A. Scott Bolden, former chair, National Bar Association PAC, Joanna LeBlanc, National Security and Foreign Affairs Legal Analyst. And at some point, maybe Michael Brown will be with us, but he's not here right now, so I'm not going to introduce him. <laughs> Listen, yeah, well, that just, you know, anxious anticipation for when the fabulous Michael Brown is with us. Hi, Michael Brown. Where are you? Scott. <laughs> yeah. You practiced a whole lot of law on both sides of the aisle, mm -hmm. and you still practice, at, frankly, at the top of your game. You're not just Thank a you. former in National Bar Association, whatever. Mm -hmm. You're a managing partner of a hoity-toity firm. So, you fancy. Have you ever, this is just my personal question. Right. Have you ever been standing on top of your head saying to the government, please investigate, please investigate? Well, you what know, is this it, about? This is um, the, the, the plaintiffs, not the plaintiffs, the alleged victims in this case want political justice. They don't want Michael Brown to be governor or even lieutenant governor. If you look at their, their written you claims, Justin Fairfax. Justin Fairfax, they don't want uh, criminal justice. They want political justice. They want to harm him politically. That's why they want to do the hearing before the uh, House and or Senate uh, at the state level in Virginia. Uh, Justin Fairfax, despite the politics, wants just the opposite. He wants criminal justice because if, he, if the allegations of rape are there in these two jurisdictions where they allegedly occurred, then they ought to be doing a criminal investigation. And he knows in his heart of hearts, and perhaps not with a new witness, he knows that, they, that this was consensual and he believes he can prove it. And it's the only thing he can do to push back short of a political hearing, which he has vowed not to show up for. And so we need to keep an eye on it. But it, it, is, it is weird and it is odd, but I think that's just the best thing that he can do 
for his political life. It's odd, Joanna. I don't know. My criminal defense bones just kind of quiver anytime anybody is begging for an investigation and That's begging the, for their client case. to testify and etc. And I've had a couple of cases where everything was supposed to go a certain way and then just didn't. And it didn't have anything to do with what the facts were. Yeah, and the unfortunate rea reality is that when it comes to um, cases of um, allegations of sexual assault and, and harassment, a lot of these cases are not even litigated in the court of law, right? Mm -hmm. The court of public opinion makes a decision. So look over here, right? If, if, if the lieutenant governor had stepped down because of pressure to resign by the politi some political parties, mm -hmm. by the members of the public, he would have been out of a job and would not have been able to serve the public like he's always wanted to do in a, in a very effective manner, sh should I add. So that's why I always say this. We should not litigate these cases in the court of public opinion. We should litigate these court cases in court. And here you have a man who is asking, please investigate me. And we're not doing it because, like you said, mm -hmm. it is not about justice. This is nothing but a mere political game. But, but Justin Fairfax needs his name cleared. Absolutely. That he I believes agree. that the people third parties mm -hmm. who can clear his name so that he can get on with this political mm -hmm. life if he has any left I agree. is the attorney general or rather the district attorney's offices mm -hmm. in these two jurisdictions. Now it is an odd theory and an odd mm -hmm. advocacy but here he knows that the investigation is his word against hers. Absolutely. Now if there's a third party witness they'll have to explain that but that's even better because right now he's losing the political mm -hmm. discussion and losing the political fight and he's, he's politically injured but if he can get cleared by these two district attorneys which is why he's pushing it mm -hmm. right he may have a chance yeah well, look mr michael brown former vice chair of the dnc finance we committee talked him up. i literally <laughs> talked you up i was thinking i was gonna have to talk to an empty chair for just pretend oh. that you were there but i know you're the man with the plan so tell me is this maybe is this maybe Maybe just strategy on the part of the Fairfax camp. They know that nobody's really interested in a real investigation, that if the government wanted to prosecute him, they'd already be doing it. They've probably figured out they don't have the facts. So we push, we push, we push, knowing we look like we want justice and clearance, but what we really are doing is playing the same political game that the other side is playing. It's all strategy, on strategy on both sides, on all sides. Um, but I think the interesting way to also look at it, and I'm sure you've talked about it, we've talked about it on this show before, is I find it interesting that the, uh, the accusers do not want to sit down in front of law enforcement investigators, but they do in front of political investigators. Lawmakers. It, it, which makes it obviously interesting. Why don't you want to go put your hand on a Bible under oath? Not to say they wouldn't in a regular hearing in a political environment, so it's just interesting. Everything's political. Everything's strategic. Um, but I think Scott's right. I think you have to do something to clear your name, and that's the one way to do it. But he's also forcing their hand right. and saying, hey, exactly. step to the plate. Right. Go up to Boston. Right. Talk to law enforcement not just in front of a Republican-controlled house. And you know well, but they actually would be swearing on a Bible. On either way. In no, not either way. They would be doing that if they stepped in for the hearing because they're under, under penalty of perjury if they do the hearing. If they go in for questioning, not so much. It could be used against them later, but 
all we have to do is look oh. at the you can't lie to law you can't lie you can't lie to law I disagree with you I'm not saying that you they're not going to lie if they lie to the police that's why okay they have criminal exposure they have exposure but it's not the same in front of the world type of exposure that they have going into the circus they want but here's my point if they go into this hearing in front of the legislatures they're not going to get anybody who's trained to ask questions we figured that out when we watched all of this shenanigans in front of the House of Representatives and the Senate. These lawmakers have no idea how to ask questions that would build a case, how to ask questions that would ferret out the facts. Yeah, but they, so do you think that this is why, hold on, wait to get the lady right here. She I just want to get to it. Say. I, want to, I, want to, I want to hear myself. I have to hear. <laughs> I want to hear myself. You go right About in. this. Ms. Joanna. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps that could be a strategy because I know that I will not be put in a position where I have to answer real questions about what happened in order to build a case. But one point that I want to make is that the unfortunate reality is that there are actual victims of sexual assault and sexual yeah. harassment each and every day in our country and across this world. Mm -hmm. And by having a case like this, it takes away from the real issues. It, it takes away the legitimacy when it comes to people who are um, who are victims of, of sexual har harassment. So who's the real culprit in this case? You know, nobody wins. Mm -hmm. Nobody wins. And, 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 and my argument is that I am not arguing that this woman, and the, I'm, I'm not questioning her credibility. Mm -hmm. What I'm questioning is the tactic that is being used in this mm -hmm. case. And it's very troubling. It's very questioning. Well, well Justin knows a couple things. He knows, at least in his view of the world, he didn't do it, whether there's a witness or not. Mm -hmm. But he also knows and is proving every time he gets PR on talking to the DA's office, right? He's showing the world that these, these two accusers are more than willing to go before a political body where they can either mislead or lie and tell the truth. But he's also showing that they don't want to sit down with the DA or the FBI or the local police because they're not prepared to lie there. Because if they lie to that small group of people for law enforcement, then they could be charged, either filing a false claim or false complaint. And he's also showing them one other thing, too. He's showing them, he's showing the world that they do not want uh, to file a criminal complaint. Now, I don't know about other victims, although I'm a former sex crimes prosecutor from New York. If this occurred, many don't want to go forward at all. But whether it's 5, 10, 20 years later, these two accusers have decided to come forward. So if you're going to come forward politically, right, then there's really no reason for you not to come forward with law enforcement. And to this day, there is no complaint pending in any one of these jurisdictions. Justin and his lawyers are showing us that every time they write a letter, every time they push the government to uh, investigate. And that's important to their strategy. I think it's going to be a winning strategy ultimately. Michael, but I want to expand the net a little bit because what I feel kind of is being lost in this where Fairfax's camp has to pretty much push to get some press about this is at one point we had the top three in Virginia legislative body in trouble. Now, the only thing that has survived is the one set of claims against the black man. Remember, at one point, he was about to be the governor. And then all of a sudden, mm -hmm. didn't matter what the governor had done. And we had all of it right there in black and white. We had pictures. We had everything we needed. Then all of a sudden, we've got, again, these 
age-old claims that come out. And as Scott says, we've got alleged victims who don't want to file a complaint, aren't interested. From the very beginning, their lawyers say, oh, no, we're not interested in filing charges. We want this behind us. But we'll come to the dog and pony show mm -hmm. that is the state legislature. Who do you think is really behind this? Well, I think we first have to distinguish between the acts of the attorney general and the governor as opposed to the lieutenant governor. Being racist is not against the law. So that, that's one piece. There's not any kind of criminal activity. Clearly, it's bad, and we don't want that, and we don't want those kind of people in office. I get that. Um, but same thing with lieutenant governor and, frankly, um, the person sitting in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, you know, I don't say his name, I say 45, is the same thing. Allegations. What happens when an allegation is made? supposed to be ferret out. You're supposed to listen to the victim. You're supposed to believe the victim. You're supposed to figure out what the due process is. Corroboration. Corroboration, witnesses, what's happened. And in this case, until you have people that are really willing to go to law enforcement, and I'm not certain. I know folks have sued 45 civilly, but I'm not aware of anyone that's gone the legal route. So there seems to be a pattern that people don't seem to want to take that next step. But you know, Michael, wait for the other shoe to drop. I would anticipate this, that if you don't get any traction with this strategy in connection to the law enforcement agencies in these two jurisdictions, uh, keep an eye out for Justin Fairfax and his legal team to sue them mm. uh, for... Um, for a defamation of some kind, libel or like slander. That. Look for that now. But we can't, can't, because 45, 45 claimed he was going to do it, and he's never done that. Yeah, because it's politically risky. Because then you're you're attacking accusers in a Me Too movement, whether they whether it occurred or not. These are still allegations. But but, but Justin Fairfax's strategy has been pretty aggressive, and I would expect that the next shoe to drop, if they can't get anywhere, once they play out the law enforcement piece, I could see them actually filing a lawsuit of defamation or slander or libel against the accusers if they really believe that they've gotten enough evidence and enough background on both uh, alleged victims uh, who don't want to report a crime uh, but want to do political harm to him. Right. Watch for that shoe to drop. Right. Well, and I mean, obviously, that is expensive and that can be even more risky because now you're guaranteeing that a client who really should never have to be deposed, never have to testify, mm -hmm. especially if they've been wrongfully accused. But he's willing to risk it all. To, he is, yeah, in the and, more, I, and he and believes that in the in the if it's in the public eye, it's helpful to him because they're still not reporting a crime and they're still trying to do him political harm. He's changing that dialogue or that dynamic, or at least trying to at this point. Right, and I'm and I'm, the lawsuit would keep it in the public domain again because if if he really believes in this strategy, he'll sit for a deposition. He's 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 uh, sat for two um, two uh, lie detector tests and, and, and uh, reportedly uh, passed both of them. The other alleged victims haven't. This dialogue he's keeping in the public domain. He's trying to change that public discussion and how he's perceived and how he's viewed, yeah. not just by women but by by everyone. Yeah. And I think uh, slowly but surely, this could be a winning strategy for him. Don't know. But politically, he still wants to run for governor. Right. And he wants it to make it work for him. And he still should be able to run for governor. I just think it's a shame. Well, no use in running if you can't win. win. <laughs> <laughs> that, well, yes. But I, I, I think that there's a difference um, between what a client wants, even when the client is a lawyer, mm -hmm. such as him, mm -hmm. um, and what 
the lawyers are advising as is what's best. You know, I think it's great to sit down for a lie detector test because you don't have to tell people that you took it unless you pass. I, it's another thing. <laughs> um, it's another thing. You know, I mean, you, you, don't, you don't have to say anything to anybody ever. It's another thing when you push for a lawsuit. But I do think that so far for the situation that he's in that I don't think that he should be in. Um, and I'm way, way, way on the record about the way I feel about allegations. But I, I do think that it's good, Joanna, that he is not hiding mm -hmm. and going, getting under a rock somewhere, stick your head down and wait till it blows over. Because for a black man in America, there's no such thing yeah. as a blow over. And at the end of the day, you know, all you really have is your name, right? And I think he wants to get that cleared up and he wants to um, change up the public's perspective and opinion and he's about who, who he is as a, as a politician and as a career man. So I, I, I agree with his, his strategy. I think it's a great strategy to just clear your name because it's all you have at the end of the day. So. We have to keep an eye on it, I think. But this is everything to him. I mean, Justin Fairfax was destined for the governorship and perhaps beyond. He was unblemished. He was winning. He had all the political contacts and the support. He was one of the most pop, uh, popular and powerful politicians in this country who just happened to be African-American. And this has derailed all of that. He really has nothing to lose with this strategy, which is why he's going hard at it, and which is why I think he likes keeping it in the public eye, as ironic and, and weird as that is. He's trying to get some traction with it, and he believes he's getting it. Right, but I think that um, one of the things that I tweeted some time ago that I wish I could say to every black man in America is it's open season. If you mm -hmm. have any amount of clout, power, money, influence, mm -hmm. don't even jaywalk. Mm -hmm. and, and I mean that. I mean, don't even jaywalk because you can look across the board at anybody who we held with mm -hmm. any level of esteem in this country and I've reached out personally to people who I've just heard from here and there and elsewhere and eh, they're trying to aim for you next tighten up the belts because it is an orchestrated mm -hmm. attack it is not happenstance people are digging and digging and digging as far back as they need to go until they come up with something that's the thing that I thought was so amazing about our first african-american president mm -hmm. to survive eight years mm -hmm. Absolutely no Eight scandal. years? Yes. I'm pretty sure that I don't know anybody that's squeaky clean <laughs> in America yes. or the world because you know if it was there, yes. they would have found it. It would have been exposed. Um, and yeah. I really don't even know, maybe you got something for us, Michael, what we can do to offset or push back against because we're watching over and over again people like the Epsteins of the world mm -hmm. who are seemingly for decades at a time mm -hmm. getting away with things and then we have people who are charged with lesser offenses or no offenses who are losing their entire lives. Mm -hmm. Well like for him, like for anybody else, elections have consequences and it played it for Epstein. He, he, he played the cards, he, he had relationships and he played it. If people weren't in office that he helped get elected he wouldn't have been able to get that kind of help. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And, but I think for, for Lieutenant Governor Fairfax, what's interesting to me is if the governor and the attorney general had resigned, I don't know where he would have been. It, it gave him strength that they stayed, even though, again, it wasn't cr criminal. But the fact that he was able to point and said, they're fighting, mm -hmm. I'm going to fight too, or whether he said, I'm going to fight, and they said, whoever was first, mm -hmm. I found, it, I think it's intriguing that they all kind of hung in there.
That's interesting yeah. because I'm pretty certain that mm -hmm. if the governor had resigned and he had stepped into the job, the allegations probably wouldn't have come forward in the first place. But that's for another day. Uh, I have a wallapalooza of attorneys on this show today, and we are going to take advantage of it. I have two of my three panelists already who are here who are esteemed attorneys, and we're going to add another. We're talking about the hottest legal topics in the news right now with our panel and with superstar attorney Yodi Tuolde, anchor for the newly launched or relaunched Court TV. And hey, yo, how proud are we of you? Welcome to Roland Martin Woo! of Filter. Yes. Woo! Hey, you. <laughs> That's it's my girl. <laughs> right, absolutely. Um, I wish I was there. <laughs> I wish you were too, but I'm glad you're there doing what you're doing, sister. Right. Lord knows I am. So, first up in today's hot legal topics, what in the world is going on with this business in Sweden and ASAP Rocky? In case you haven't seen the video of the fight in Stockholm, Sweden that started it all, take a look at this. We don't want to fight y'all. We're not trying to go to jail. My headphone, my headphone, he's fucking you. Look, look, you, you hit him with it. I want my headphone. You hit him with it. Bro. I want to go down the street. Go down the street. Go down the street. Go down the street. Let's fuck it, bro. It's okay, bro. right now since that happened he was arrested he's getting a lot of support from the hip-hop community with reports of him being held in an inhumane disease-ridden facility that claim of course is being disputed yodit first where was the crime when, oh, oh boy, whoever that was, was throwing stuff and starting Great. ruckus upon ruckus? And how is it that ASAP Rocky is the one who ends up in this ridiculously long detention in all of these circumstances? I, you know, I don't even know if, because they're trying to charge him with aggravated assault. And the prosecutor in this case is trying to determine whether he's going to, you know, prosecute or not on those charges. And it may have something to do with who ASAP Rocky is, right? Because you would think that having that evidence, that video where you show time and time again, ASAP Rocky in the video and his entourage saying, please, we do not want any trouble. We, please stop following us. You see one of the uh, young men throwing their, you know, headphones at one of the other guys in ASAP Rocky's entourage. So you would think that with that video, and then you have ASAP Rocky going to the police himself voluntarily and reporting this 
and showing evidence of the, uh, of the confrontation. You would think at that point that you would understand what the situation was. I don't know what was wrong with those two individuals, but I think it had a lot to do with who ASAP Rocky is. Um, and unfortunately, I think that the prosecutor in this case is trying to either get some clout um, because it's being alleged that he is really not trying to let ASAP Rocky go. And instead, he's trying to seek an additional two weeks for him to remain in detention while he gears up for trial. Okay, but Scott, tell me this. Do we not have an obligation in our government to do something to assist this man? Well, I, uh, well, well, I'm sure the embassies and the diplomacy is in place and working on what we're going to what needs to happen uh, from the prosecutor's standpoint what the prosecutor is looking at um, and it may be right of uh, what's been said already uh, but the prosecutor is also looking at that video that the african-american men could have retreated more or they could have called the police and at the end of the video you see three or four of them beating one or both of the um, harassers if you will and so if you look at the full video you're absolutely right there's some good stuff in there for the rapper that's in, incarcerated. But the second half of the last portion of that video shows them being assaulted. And so I don't disagree with anything that's being said. This case, if nobody was hurt or it needs to settle or go to mediation or what have you, but if we he went to the police and the, the tables have been turned on him, then the lawyers need to get together and resolve it. If this was at the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., they'd be in mediation right now. Well, we would hope. I mean, people are being held when they shouldn't be held, even in the United States, you know, where where you can't buy yourself out. Obviously, he would have been able to pay, we would think, for some bond or some bail or for whatever in yeah, order to no be released pending. I don't know. And that's he's, what I'm no, saying. He, he was denied bail. He, he was, was considered bail. a flight risk. Wow. Right. Yeah. Well, he, probably, he, he certainly is, but, but that would mean the, 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 the embassies and the ambassador to Sweden, which is a neutral country, ought to be involved negotiating some resolution. I well, bet you as we watch uh -huh. this in the next two or three days, there'll be some uh, diplomatic resolution to this. No, because how long well, has this been going on, Yodit? Well, apparently, so he's been in for at least, we know, five days, because it's been reported that mm -hmm. he's only been able to eat one apple a day for five days. But not to mention um, what you're saying uh, about diplomacy, uh, Scott. Mm -hmm. Under the Vienna Convention uh, for Consular Relations, mm -hmm. it's a treaty signed by both the U.S. and Sweden, uh -huh. um, ASAP has the right to immediately see and consult with the consulate. And so when he were, he actually... Uh, requested one. And when the consulate official appeared at the detention center, he was denied access to him. Mm. So then two days later, he finally was able to talk to the consulate, right. but only in the presence of Swedish officials. Yeah. So if you think about it in terms of how we, we do things here, you obviously yeah. have a constitutional right to yeah. counsel and to have private communications that's protected under the attorney-client privilege. He's getting none of that whatsoever. Yeah. So they're in clear violation of this treaty. Good right. Point. And in all Good places, point. Joanna, Sweden, <laughs> the place where we're supposed to go, they got where we figure everything. Look, listen, <laughs> they got racists everywhere. everywhere. <laughs> that's for sure. But we would hope, in terms of a judicial system that's going to offer some measure of fairness, mm -hmm. especially since our own DOJ is a little sketchy right now. I mean, what 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 steps need to be being done here? Yeah, I, I find it very problematic that he was he was not giving access to the consulate. Like, because under the, like she said, under the Vienna Convention, you have that right.
right as a citizen who is abroad. When something happens, the first person you call, the first body that you contact is the U. If you're a U.S. citizen, you contact your embassy or whatever right. citizen or whatever country you may be. You contact that embassy of that country, and then they're supposed to provide you with assistance. So I'm trying to figure out, like, you know, am I missing something? Are there more facts that we don't know about? Because I don't understand why he was not given access to. Well, he the had consulate. access to them, but, but not immediately, though. Not not, oh, wow. not immediately. Well, so it's, it's, being it's being alleged that the consulate was denied access because they didn't want the consulate to see the conditions that they're exposing him to. Apparently, he's in 24-7 uh, solitary confinement. Mm -hmm. He's not getting the food that he needs. It's basically like walking into a toilet is what someone said. Mm -hmm. um, and so because of the conditions, the inhumane conditions he's being exposed to, they didn't want the, uh, you know, the official from the uh, U.S. Yep. Embassy to see that. Yeah. That could be the reason as well. Yeah. But nonetheless, still denied access. And right now, we don't even know if he's really going to be charged or not. So he's being detained indefinitely. And, you know, something needs to be done quick, quickly. So, Michael, quickly. What, are, what are some things we can do to turn up the volume here? Because I put no faith right now in the manner in which our Department of Justice is running and the types of edicts that are being sent out around the world. I mean, it is obvious that favoritism is at hand in the way that people who are charged with crimes, even crimes against the United States of America, are being treated. What well, do we do? I mean, a different direction, because what everything you guys have been discussing relative to the legal part of it and diplomacy and all that is absolutely correct, but which is something you alluded to earlier, is that the rules are different for black people. And sometimes you need to turn and walk away. What do you, because what do you have to lose if things go south? And this is what you have to lose when things go south. Yes, were they being obnoxious? Were they being annoying? Of course they were. Be, but you were the one with the bodyguards. Just walk away. There's no. And you have more to lose. You have them. absolutely more to so lose. So you've the, got to walk. Not, what, what is the macho being tough beating up two guys that are smaller Ooh, than you? Well, Absolutely. But whether it was you, Michael, whether it was you, Scott, and you did not walk away, if you had that one too many offenses against your manhood, against your blackness, against your black manhood, okay. what you're supposed to have is laws that protect you, a country that stands up for we you, a lawyer that, that speaks for you. Agreed. No, no, Agreed. no. But the rapper's in jail. Maybe he's they So he's in yes. jail, though, and yes. he's trying to get out yes. of jail and get back he to the is U.S. In jail. He could have avoided all of that mm. by taking yes. simple responsibility that. for I mean, yourself and walking away. Along. And yeah, he, he, record, he recorded the incident I for that very same reason, right? And so we tell we tell young black Americans, um, black and brown people here to do as they're told when they encounter police. And guess what? That yeah. still doesn't work. But why do we well, record? But yo, okay, no, yo, no, let me say this. I have to let me say I this though. I can't, we can't even, it's I hard can't even for young you. African American he men to talking. take that super responsibility. But we've got to tell I think he did. Too. I think he did as many times okay. as he could possibly. I'm sorry. Physically threatening. All lawyers stand down. We're not done. <laughs> next up in our thing. legal, next up in our legal roundtable, there's plenty left to argue about. Under the new North Carolina law, a drug dealer who illegally sells a controlled substance that causes someone's death could be charged with second degree 
murder, the so-called, quote, death by distribution, end quote, act, signed into law Monday by Governor Roy Cooper, allows prosecutors to charge dealers with a Class B2 felony, which carries a penalty of up to 40 years in prison if they have a previous unlawful distribution conviction. Yodit, listen here, listen here. It's one thing, I know what conspiracy is, so before anybody tries to go there, I'm talking to Yodita, I'm talking to Scott, I'm talking to Joanna, I don't want to hear nothing about no, if you're the one driving the car and somebody gets killed in the bank. No, that's not what this is. This is, you sell a dime bag to somebody who has an allergic reaction and dies, yep. and now you're in jail for 40 years. Your thoughts, no. Ms. Tuolde? Okay, so I'm really frustrated with some of these lawmakers who feel like getting rid of drug dealers uh, would mean getting rid of drugs. That whole idea of policies on trying to, this war on drugs is just not working. The logic is just flawed. So we have drug dealers because we have users, right? That's, yes. that's how it works. Only Supply way you can get rid of or reduce the amount of dealers right. is to either legalize drugs or treatment, right? And so if, if, if we went with the rationale behind this law being implemented, then why are we going after big, big uh, drug companies? Because they're the ones that are providing the drugs. So if we had no drugs, there'd be no overdose, right? That's the logic. Yeah. And so you're saying basically that this person, and these are low-level drug dealers, right, that we're talking about. They're not talking about really getting big, high-end drug dealers. You're getting those low-level offenders who, want either have a drug addiction themselves and are just selling enough to get their addiction fed, right? That's it. But you're really talking about spending more money on prosecution, spending more money on jails and prisons because that's exactly what's going to happen because we're going to be filling up those jails with low-level offenders mm -hmm. those those individuals that are selling you know dimes if that's what you call them but yes yeah, so I, I think that the, the 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 motive behind this law is very suspect we know who they're going to be targeting um with this law but to 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 basically remove any and all accountability from the individual who chooses to overdose or use drugs is ridiculous. And and Joanna, what she's saying but not saying, I of course am going to say directly, this <laughs> disproportionately and directly affects the African-American community. Mm -hmm. It directly affects young African-American men. It is just furthering the over-incarceration slave wage game that the United States has been playing ever since slavery was so-called abolished. But it's going a step further. Because now, something that you could have gotten probation for, you may be facing 40 years. Yeah, and, and I agree with you, um, Monique. I'm, I'm very concerned. And, and the reason being is because in communities where employment um, opportunities are, are scarce, right, and the school systems are, are completely broken, you find children and young adults who fall prey to selling drugs, like she said earlier, dime bags. And now those folks are at jeopardy of being charged with a felony, with murder rather, in the event that someone were to die of suicide as a result of purchasing a dime bag. I think this kind of legislation is specifically targeting certain people. And like she said as well, it's a very suspicious legislation and I'm, mm -hmm. and, and I'm appalled because it's targeting people who look like me, 
and people from my from my respective it's, communities. It's a pretty race neutral statute. You know, it applies to white all people have, too. All you, all you have, have to do no, is no, not sell no, drugs, well, right, Scott? No, you and Michael are no, trading no, on no, with our personal no, responsibility me, panel no, today. No, Come on, let, give it to me. Let me just say this: you can't OD on a dime bag, first of all. You can't. You can't have an allergic reaction to drugs. They didn't say overdose. So if you have an illegal, if you have a reaction, that's not. If you have a reaction, your your scenario was a reaction to weed or whatever you've been selling, right? That would be what we call a supervening, intervening act. If somebody finds out, right? And do you know how hard it is to connect the drugs back to the drug dealer? So this was when they following you every day, all day. Not that hard at all. This was targeted for opioid users and sellers, as well as cocaine and all drugs. First of all, second of all, these jurisdictions who have these laws have successfully prosecuted dealers where the, where the user has OD'd. Tell that to the family of the user. Right. Tell that to the family of the users who they get a bad case of drugs because they're addicts and they can't protect themselves. And then the you, the, uh, the drug dealers are taking advantage of them and they do have a negative reaction. Right. These laws are constitutionally sound. They're race neutral. And they apply to everybody. But for them giving me the drugs, but for me giving them the drugs, that person would be alive. What's wrong with that? Now we're back to the butt for Social. The butt for I think this policy on its face looks very neutral. But you it, a butt for Michael? That's a hell of a standard. I think that this policy on its face looks very neutral, mm -hmm. but in its actual implementation, mm -hmm. it's going to be detrimental to a certain group like of people. Most, like period. That's so, just the reality. Poor white people and black people. Would you agree with that? Because they are the low-level drug dealers that Scott, are selling Scott, this stuff. Scott, Scott, So why don't okay. you hold? Why don't you hold big drug companies criminally liable? Well, I was going to raise that too because they distribute more opioids than anyone else. However, Precisely. they don't administer it. That goes to the doctors, and the doctors are being prosecuted for pill factories and other uh, crimes that are committed based on their overdistribution of opioids. So I'm not talking about the big drug dealers. Are they being prosecuted for murder? Pardon no. me. Are they They're being, not being prosecuted, prosecuted for murder, murder, though? Oh, yes, they have. What about oh. the doctor who what, the doctor who gave Michael Jackson too much propofol? He was oh, prosecuted, and he one, spent several years case. in jail. So, so you pull from the one unicorn <laughs> in, uh, in you, a you field ask. full of sheep, you and, and what you say? When you call back to yeah, my big law firm, you, you, I'll have you some other cases yes. in about 20 minutes. <laughs> and you'll be defending the pharmaceutical companies. But, Michael, any I'm thoughts? Any thoughts? No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be Switzerland on this one. <laughs> you gonna leave me alone? On this one. Okay, that's fine. Go on. I'm serious. You can go oh, to the. Really okay. I'm not even touching it, and I would prefer we move on. Fine. Our third hot legal topic is about the murder of Botham John. Former Dallas police officer Amber Geiger is going on trial for the shooting death of Botham John after allegedly mistaking his apartment as her own. Yes, she allegedly mistook the apartment and then shot the person inside. That's the way that works. However, with, with her with her government issue 
pistol. However, her attorneys have filed a change of venue motion to move the murder trial out of Dallas County. The reasons her attorneys give is prejudicial and inflammatory media coverage. Well, I personally would love to see how Where? this plays Where? out. <laughs> I mean, this 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 will be really interesting. Tried that one a few times myself. Yo, Deed, any thoughts? Um, so my thoughts is um, that this motion is going to be denied. I know the judge, she definitely wants a case. I, I don't think so. she's going to, you know, uh, grant this motion, but um, it's within her discretion. But let me just let me just say that if she's concerned about inflammatory press, uh, probably a hostile jury pool in Dallas County, um, she's she's sorely mistaken, because if anything, I think that the uh, vilifying of both Eugene was really at another level compared to her. I mean, who had the article out about him having marijuana? in his apartment, like that even mattered to the case, right? Mm -hmm. So I have yet to see a bad headline pertaining to her, like they tried to do, the media tried to do for the person that was actually shot and killed in the matter. So it's, it's laughable. Um, and I, I, I hate when people say they can't get a fair trial. And I know that's her, her attorney's job to, to try and get her the best results as possible. But when you think about the system, you're, you're either saying you don't trust jurors to, to be fair and impartial, and I know some can't, but when you think about high-profile cases like George Zimmerman, you got Casey Anthony. I mean, she was hated in America. And guess what? Mm -hmm. She also got an acquittal. So it's doable. I think her case is most certainly not the exception. Um, and I don't think she's going anywhere. And she deserves to be tried mm -hmm. in Dallas where she allegedly killed and murdered um, both in Jane. So. Right. And, and people forget these facts, Scott. I mean, the police department covered and protected. She was given all of that time before she had to do an official statement. Yep. And then yep. in addition to that, while that was happening, they were they were putting out statements of mm -hmm. their own. I mean, very right. actively pushing a narrative mm -hmm. without the facts. I mean, the Fraternal Order Police surrounded this woman. All of the things that could have gone in her favor did. And now here we come with the motion. And Yodi is right. They're supposed to file this motion. But to me, the opposite of what they're saying in the motion is really what happened. And this is still Texas. So for them to think that they're not going to be able to get a fair trial in my home state, to me, is pushing it a little Texas just far. Texas no, Dallas, Dallas. Dallas is Dallas, very... Texas. Yeah, so, well. But, but you know, I agree with uh, Yo. Um, it's also very difficult to win a motion like this. Because normally you have to submit statistical data to show that the jury pool has been tainted and that the neighboring county jury pool has not been tainted. Yeah. And uh, that's just really, really difficult. Um, this is a tough case for uh, the, the uh, not the prosecutor, but a tough case, yeah, tough case to, to charge her because what, what her defense is gonna be is that one, this is a tragic matter. She's, she may even apologize and say it was a horrible, horrible mistake that was made. But I'm still a police officer. I made a mistake. I thought it was my apartment. I was tired from working over shifts. I felt threatened, legitimately or not, I felt threatened. I asked that person to leave or to stand or to stop. He didn't, and uh, I fired in, in defense of my personal safety and for fear of my life. Now... No, the hold defense on. may be the prosecution has got to try to bar that. We have but to it take may, a But break. it won't be because even if it's illogical or makes zero this sense, right you still 
the, the defendant is still going to have an opportunity to defend himself, like, okay, defend herself Scott, like that. You may take and that's going to be powerful. You want, if you want the case, jury. you have now <laughs> made your plea to become her attorney <laughs> right here. The, na the nation knows it. Yo, D, we got to take a break. But thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you. Thank I you, know thank all you. the stats. You can watch my girl on court TV Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to noon. And then she does a recap after that. You can get it online. You can check your local listings. Watch her do what she does. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> See you soon. Thank you, Mo. Okay. Thank you, guys. Bye. All right. We'll be back. You want to check out Roland Martin Unfiltered? YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real. It's Roland Martin Unfiltered. See that name right there? Roland Martin Unfiltered. Like, share, subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's youtube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. And don't forget to turn on your notifications so when we go live, you'll know it. All right, folks, they're back. MarijuanaStock.org has another great investment opportunity. If you were lucky enough to invest in their last crowdfunding campaign, you know they raised a lot of money in just a few months investing in legal marijuana farms. Those initial investors now own shares of a publicly traded company. And, of course, they are very excited by that. Now they have a new investment opportunity that is as good, if not better, than the last. I'm talking about industrial hemp CBD. For those who don't know, the hemp plant is a cousin to marijuana, uh, of course, and then you, it has a higher concentration of CBD, which means hemp CBD gives you all of the medical benefits of marijuana without getting you high. Now, until recently, hemp farming was practically illegal in the U.S. and heavily regulated by the DEA. However, that changed with the 2018 Farm Bill, making it legal to grow hemp CBD in the U.S. and creating one of the largest commodities worldwide. They need land to grow all of the plants, and this makes for an incredible investment opportunity. And that's where our good friends at 420 Real Estate come in. Their business model is simple. They buy land that supports hemp CBD grow operations and lease it to licensed high-paying tenants. That's right. They are hemp CBD landlords, and you can get in on the action. You can invest in this crowdfunding campaign for as little as 200 bucks, up to $10,000. All right, folks, all you got to do is go to MarijuanaStock.org. That's MarijuanaStock.org if you want to get in the game. And if you do so, do it now. Senator Kamala Harris announced a $100 billion grant program to address the racial home ownership gap at the Essence Festival in New Orleans on Saturday. The grants would assist people of color who have lived in historically redlined neighborhoods with down payments and closing costs. We're going to talk about the viability of her plan with Antoine Thompson, Executive Director of the National Association of Real Estate Brokers. Welcome to Roland Martin Unfiltered, Mr. Thompson. Thank you. Thank you uh, for having us on the uh, program today. And uh, NARAB is the oldest black real estate association. We have a campaign right now to increase the black home ownership rate by 2 million people. Uh, we are very encouraged uh, by Senator Harris's proposal. Uh, we think that it has some value. Of, co of course, there needs to be additional things uh, beyond the uh, $100 billion to help close the home ownership gap uh, for black people in America, because right now the black home ownership rate is 41% and the white home ownership rate is 71%. So this this is a great start with the, her uh, idea of $100 billion uh, to help with down payment assistance, which is one of the 
top barriers to home, black home ownership, but we've got to do other things uh, beyond uh, what she's talked about in her proposal. I just want to go back to something because I hope that our viewers did not miss it. You said that the black home ownership rate is 41% compared to a rate that is 30% higher for whites in America. And people wonder where the wealth gap is. Isn't it true that we really are looking at one of the most relevant statistics where that's concerned? Uh, absolutely. We've been able to bridge the gap in America in education attainment, uh, and we've been able to bridge the gap uh, to some degree in, in, in terms of wages. But one of the biggest things that impacts all of that is uh, home ownership because over 45% of all small businesses start in the home. And, and Roland talks about no home, no loan. And so home ownership is the one thing that African-Americans before slavery and after slavery have always been on this quest to obtain and acquire land. And there's been all these barriers that have consistently uh, limited the ability for African-Americans to not only acquire land, but also to have a fair shot at acquiring it and obtaining it. So this uh, proposal that Senator Harris has put forward is, is a great start, but we also need to make sure that we have um, credit reform in her proposal. It talks about uh, updating the Fair Credit Reporting Act. We need to also strengthen the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act. We need to push for a bill that Congressman Meeks is sponsoring the American Dream Down Payment Savings Plan, which would allow for people to save up for the purchase of a house the way we do with the 529 for college. So there's a number of other things that we need to do, uh, but her uh, major announcement is a great start. And it's also good to see more of the candidates talking about home ownership because home ownership impacts health outcomes, it impacts uh, our ability uh, for our kids to stay out of trouble. And, in, and many of our people, whether they want to start a business or send their kid to college, uh, home ownership impacts all of those things. Now, what do you think about the fact that the funds are going to be offered specifically in redlined areas? We've been watching the conservative commentators, pundits, and anchors talk about how this is some sort of reverse racism, even though, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not asking my thoughts, I'm asking your thoughts. I had to get back on track there, lost myself. What do you <laughs> think about the appropriateness of it being redlined districts? Well, I think that, um, you know, although gentrification is happening across the country and whites are moving into many of these formerly redlined areas, um, the fact of the matter is that uh, we have many communities across the country where African-Americans' uh, neighbors are still redlined. It's not even formally. Uh, the fact of the matter is that we it's still black people are denied mortgages at twice the rate of whites, even when they have similar economic profiles. It's still hard for African-Americans to get homeowners and property insurance in, uh, in certain neighborhoods. So I think it's a good effort. I would say it shouldn't be limited to just those areas. But clearly, uh, there's enough documentation out there that shows that the areas that were redlined by the federal government in the 1930s 1940s, 50s, and 60s 
that those neighborhoods that were mostly black and brown, that you can trace their economic conditions back to that time period. So there just needs to be some restitution uh, for that injustice that was perpetrated by the federal government on black people. And what can we do about what you said about the fact that we as African Americans are denied loans at higher numbers? Because what I know for sure is banks can loan money to who they want to loan money to. And it doesn't really matter whether you're credit worthy or so-called credit worthy or not. Um, if they have a program, they can develop a program that fits your needs. But it seems to me that then we end up on the other side where we end up with predatory lending practices. What is it that we can do on the lending side of things in order to solve that problem? So the, the first thing is we've got to get our local state, federal, community, and civic leaders talking about this massive problem, that, which is that 51 years after the passage of the Fair Housing Act and all these other laws afterwards, uh, and it, it, we still have a 30-point gap between blacks and whites in, in home ownership. And what can we do? And first thing is our leaders, whether they're a tenant leader or a neighborhood leader, a business leader, a faith leader, or elected official, they got to first ask the question to their local banks. What are you doing? What are the home ownership rates in our neighborhood, in my community? And what are your lending patterns? What's the ratio for every black person in my neighborhood? Is this true? Show me the data. Because if they ask the question, every city council person this October, we would encourage them in October, this October, to have a hearing on black home ownership. Bring those lenders in. Bring those state and federal agencies in. Ask them, what is the home ownership lending disparity in my community? Because if you ask the question, start by asking the question, then they got to an answer. And NARAB is here to help you with the, uh, with the solutions as well. They got to first ask. They got to demand action. Because throughout most, much of the country, the, the disparity is so significant and most local, state, and federal officials have no idea that this is happening. All right. Well, I appreciate you being here with us, Mr. Thompson. i, I got to move on to the next story, but tell us real quick, what's your website or where can people go to get more information? They can go to nareb.com or if they top in black home ownership, we're one of the first three, three hits, nareb.com. Thank you for having us on this program. Thank you. While Roland was at the American Black Film Festival, he had the opportunity to sit down with screenwriter, director, and producer Reggie, Reginald Hudlin about his documentary, Black Godfather. Here's that interview. All right, let's talk about Black Godfather, Reggie Hudlin. Um, this is, first of all, it, an absolutely amazing documentary. And what I love is, for someone, I, I know Clarence, you know Clarence, but for that person out there who has no idea who the hell this black guy is, he was, he is, not was, he is the man who everybody wants to know. Absolutely. You know, one of the most gratifying things is uh, you see people who, who know Clarence very well who go, you actually got him. You got the whole him, uh, which is very touching. And what was interesting about it? What's interesting about it again when you see uh, when you see the documentary and, and you, you're hearing these stories and you're going seriously, seriously, especially the one where you had CBS 
and and making him ET and all these different people at the table. And they're like, well, who is Clarence here for? Well, Clarence is actually here for all of us and how he is the ultimate connector, if you will. Right. That's why I always try to have at least two or more people telling a story. A, just to get all those different perspectives on mm -hmm. it, and also to confirm it really happened. Because these stories are kind of unbelievable. You go, wait, this guy did all those things? And you go, yes, yes, yes. All these things are confirmed. What was also, I think, what was important is that when you, when you look at the telling of this story, the fact that you had this white man who was in the business who became... Um, Clarence's Sherpa, his guide, somebody who said, I am going to show you the business, but I'm also going, because uh, I, I also recognize something in you that's also valuable for what we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an extraordinary experience, uh, an extraordinary relationship between him and Joe Glazier. Um, there was, there was he calls Mr. Glazier. Always I just, Mr. Glazier. Throughout, throughout the entire documentary, he always says Mr. Glazier. Doesn't right. say Joe. No, no. And in the same way, you know, when you are around people who work with James Brown and they only say Mr. Brown, mm -hmm. you just go, oh, that's that old school thing where you do that and you always do that. That person could be gone for 40 years. They will only say Mr. Glazier, Mr. Brown. There's this great story, uh, not in the film, um, where Joe Glazier loved baseball. And uh, he had a section at Yankee Stadium, right? When there was a nameplate that said Joe Glazier, where he sat. <laughs> and so he would call Clarence and go, uh, we're going to the, going to the Yankee game. Um, pick you up at 6.30. So they'd be walking down to the seats and Clarence would stop because at a certain point, black people aren't supposed to go. So Joe would turn around and go, what's wrong with you? Because oh, I'm not supposed to be done there. So you with me. And... <laughs> Not only would he take Clarence down there, he would tell, hey, Governor Dewey, move over. This is Clarence's seat. He's sitting next to me. <laughs> and he would tell Clarence, just listen, you're going to learn some stuff. That is wild. And, what Clarence, and then what he is seeing is he is seeing how power is wielded. Yes. And J Joe's statement at the end of that is like, um, this is going to be a little... Well, it, you know, in the vernacular, uh, Joe would say, they shit just like you shit. Like, <laughs> there's no reason for you to defer to anyone, whether they're a movie star or a politician, whoever. They're all just people just like you. What's also, I think, compelling about this particular documentary is the fact that here is someone n not more than a ninth grade education, but it shows people the value of the other education, the one that you cannot get in a classroom. Absolutely. Clarence grew up in an environment where it was a fight to survive. It was a fight to survive in a home with an abusive stepfather. It was a fight to survive in a town you know, infested with Klansmen, where you couldn't walk down the street without a possible threat to your life. And so through that, he developed not only the instinct 
uh, of how to survive. He maintained a value system that said, I'm going to fight for right. And that's quite exceptional because you can get into a survival mode and be very selfish. Well, I, I, you know, I, it's just, you know, I'm fighting to live. I'm fighting to live. And, but it's like, but like, no, no, no. Let's fight for right. Let's fight to protect people who are defenseless. That's a different, higher um, mental state. They actually get me to wind up. I, I know. I'm not. It's, it's never going to happen. No, that's not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Y'all <laughs> about to get cussed out over there. No, we're not. Uh, who is that? Me and Kevin already had a different conversation. All right, let's go. So here's one of the things that also I thought is it. So there's is this point in, this, in the documentary where you, this is five white guys, mm -hmm. all of these music heads, mm -hmm. all of these folks are sitting there and talking about him. And I'm watching it, and I'm literally saying, why, was, why is it Clarence in one of those positions? Because, I, because they're talking about his brilliance. They're talking about just how this dude, just how smart he is. And I'm going, why the hell isn't he in one of those positions earning the millions and millions of dollars and not having to have a couple of his friends bail him out when his record label goes under and loses the radio station. Mm -hmm. and, it, and, and, and I thought about other African-Americans who just as smart, just as brilliant, but never got to sit in that top seat. Look, I agree. Uh, I think in the unique case of Clarence, I think Clarence ultimately decided he didn't he loved making deals he loved connecting people but he didn't enjoy being an operator you know so even though he had two record labels he had a radio station and all that what he liked most was the deal and the hunt so i think in the back half of his life he said that's what i like to do this is the, you know so i'm going to focus on that that said there are so many enormously talented people who do not get the shot that they deserve. Uh, and the opportunity to prove themselves, the opportunity to mess up, mm -hmm. and then get a second and sometimes third shot. Um, and that's a shame. And hopefully this movie will inspire more people to ask that same question that you just did. Took you three years to do this. Mm -hmm. um, an enormous number of celebrities who, who, who were in this. And you watch it and you go, Dang, who didn't this dude connect with? Absolutely. And here's the thing. He didn't just connect with them, work with them, do a deal with them. Those people still feel a very deep connection to the point when, when you call and say, we're doing a documentary for Clarence, they all say yes. Two presidents say yes. You know, uh, two of the greatest sports legends ever, Jim Brown you know, Henry Aaron say yes. Unbelievable. But they say this guy made a meaningful difference in my life. I, I love the Coca-Cola story and Hank Aaron, uh, how Clarence just called. And, and I don't use the N-word, but basically he, he, he tells his white CEO, black folks buy Coke. A lot of Coke. And... <laughs> I mean, just straight up. And the thing is, he walks into the boardroom, he pulls his chair up to the desk, so basically... It might as well be his desk as much as the CEO's desk. Doesn't say hello. Just cuts right to, we 
buy a lot of coke. And that's the beginning of the negotiation. Now, you know how it's going to go if that's... <laughs> right. If, if that's the beginning of it, you know how this thing is going to happen. Absolutely. What do you... Clarence is 88. I called him a few days ago, and he said, man, I've gotten more calls from around the world than I ever have in my life. Um, there's so much we can learn from, from watching documentary like this here. I think about the Jerry Weintraub book, uh, that documentary. There was so much I learned reading it in terms of how you deal with people, how you negotiate, how you visualize things. What do you want? A young African-American or somebody of any race, and because Netflix is also worldwide, there are people all around the world seeing this. What do you want them to learn from this that they can use no matter what their field is? Clarence's ability to evolve is unbelievable. This is a guy, I mean, ninth grade education, Climax, North Carolina, sharecropping, which is virtual slavery, right? That's not a promising start. But somehow he made the most out of any window of opportunity he was given. And he was able to rise to the occasion to the point that he's sleeping in the Lincoln bedroom of the White House. He's doing deals with the top power brokers in New York and L.A. It's because he never hit a ceiling where he wasn't competent anymore. He kept having curiosity. He kept learning. And he never said, here's these external reasons that have stopped me from getting what I want. He always checked himself and said, how do I grow to be ready for the next thing? And that's a lesson for Every person, I don't care what level you are right now. Last question. You've got a ton of stuff. Yeah. When I interviewed with Harry, when I talked to Harry Belafonte, he did he had eight hundred hours worth of content when he did his uh, documentary. Mm -hmm. um, what the hell are you gonna do with all the rest of that stuff? Because I'm taking it's a bunch of stuff you have, that you haven't even used. Yeah. There's a bunch of stuff. There's some amazing stories. I just, you know, mentioned one to you. There's a right, which was the one about uh, Joe and the um, and going to the stadium. That wasn't in the documentary. Right. We have an easy hour of stories. Just great stories, great deals, great everything. So look, this movie is so successful. Perhaps we can find a way to. Show folks some more stuff. Uh, this is called The Black Godfather. Uh, if you uh, have not seen it, you want to see it. It is an amazing documentary. You guys did uh, a, a great job with it. And, and I just appreciate uh, that Clarence uh, allowed for the story to be told. Because I think we need to hear more about figures like him and hearing their stories. Uh, and also celebrating them while they are still with us. Absolutely. Uh, thanks to the Avon family, thanks to Netflix, uh, and the amazing crew uh, that dedicated their lives over all those years to make it happen. Okay, one, I'm like a Baptist preacher, one final question. Okay, you did this here. Is there a doc of someone living or deceased that you would love to do? There's several. There's people that I want to do, and there's also subject matters and events. Got it. Right? So, I mean, this is my first feature-length documentary. Uh, it seems to be very enthusiastically received. So in addition to feature films and television and comic book and live events, 
I'm going to mix a little documentary action into my uh, future line of product. All right. Sounds good. Yes, Always sir. good seeing you, my brother. Always. Appreciate it. Thanks a bunch. Yes, sir. Phil Freeland, the architect who helped design the National Museum of African American History and Culture, died in Durham, North Carolina on Tuesday at the age of 66. Here's a clip of him describing his role and commitment to the project. Everybody has the same question, the same problem, the same brief. But you're going to have 20 different answers. And so you have to listen and understand, is the project advancing the community anyways? You know, are we having that kind of positive impact? My name is Phil Freelon. I'm an architect and graduate of the College of Design. Community is important because I live in a community, <laughs> and I want to enhance the community. The National Museum of African American History and Culture is about history and culture, both. Telling those stories and being part of the narrative is an important element of the design, right? And so if our museum is uh, furthering the understanding between culture and recognize for the power that it can have over people's lives. And the payoff is uh, at the end, there's something there that is going to be standing for a long time and it's going to be uh, valued and used and move culture forward. Freelon was diagnosed with ALS in 2016. After his diagnosis, he helped raise awareness for the condition by starting a foundation called Design a World Without ALS. The foundation raised money to research the disease and help support those living with it. In addition to the African American History Museum, Freelon is behind the designs for the National Center for Civil and Human Rights in Atlanta, the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco, and Emancip Emancipation Park in Houston among others. We send our thoughts, prayers, and gratitude to Phil Freelon's family and all who loved him. Well, we are finally at the end of this show. That is it for this edition of Roland Martin Unfiltered. Be sure to tune in again tomorrow when Roland will be back, yes, with more of the news you won't see on any mainstream network. If you want to support this show, you can join the Bring the Funk fan club. Just go to RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. Thank you, thank you, thank you to my panel, Scott, Joanna, Michael, for joining us here today. And thank you guys for putting up with me in this hot seat. He'll be back tomorrow. Holla! From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.